are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. It's nice to uh, preach and not feel like I'm trying out for you. Um, It's uh, brought back a lot of bad memories from middle school, Um, but that's all right. Uh, Super excited uh, to be here kind of officially now, I guess, as your lead pastor and just to kind of give you an update on what my life and Christine's life will look like, and our family's lives, over the next month and a half, just so you can know that we're not like hiding in Birmingham somewhere, not really hanging out with you, because um, I don't want that to be the case. Uh, we found a house here, which is awesome. Thank you for praying for that. It's actually in Crestwood. It's three minutes from here, which is awesome. Um, we closed on that house on March the 11th, so middle of next month, closed on the house, and then we will actually move over here on April the 1st. So until then, we'll be making a a few weekenders here and there. Um, Definitely, obviously, coming on Sundays. Um, It's just a matter of like how our kids hold up on weekenders, if we come on the weekend or just on a Sunday morning. But I am so thankful for all of you for praying for us. I'm so thankful for the elders and the staff here, which, by the way, can we just appreciate them just for their just, yep. They have, I mean, as I've kind of dug into the trenches a little bit, it's just amazing how much they have done and served you and how much they've done it with joy over the last nine months of looking for a pastor and even before that. Um, and I'm just so thankful for them. Led my first staff meeting and elders meeting last week, which was awesome. There's just, just great people that love you so much. And so I'm grateful for them. Uh, and I encourage you at some point, just tell them how much you love them. Uh, if you haven't done that already, just encourage them, build them up. So today we are going to be launching into a new sermon series that's going to take us through Easter Sunday um, called uh, Signs Speak. All right, And the reason it's called that is we're going to be kind of making our way through the Gospel of John. And John is structured in such a way that there are seven signs in the Gospel of John, seven miracles that Jesus performs. And we're going to be looking at those over the next seven weeks. Week eight will be Palm Sunday. And week nine will be Resurrection Sunday, so the greatest of all the signs. Um, and particularly in the Gospel of John, when it comes to signs, 
These signs are not just for the sake of signs. They're not just for the sake of temporary relief from hunger, as we're going to see when Jesus feeds 5,000 people. They're not for uh, the sake of just a blind man giving, being given sight, although that's a great thing. It's not even for the sake of someone being raised from the dead, as we're going to see from Lazarus in John 11. Those are obviously good things, but a sign in the Gospel of John is intended to communicate something on a far greater level. Um, a sign in John is merely a symbol. It's a symbol that is a good symbol, and it carries with it really three purposes. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is not our text for today. I just want to give you some context as to what we're moving into over the next seven, eight, nine weeks. So the first purpose of John's use of signs in his gospel was to show the connection between the miracle and the coming Messiah. To show connection between the miracle performed and the Messiah that was coming. There is a, there's an anticipatory tone all throughout the Gospel of John. The people are awaiting a Messiah, and they expect him to come soon. If we're doing a walk through the entire Gospel of John, which I hope we can do at some point in the future, um, we would have seen already in John chapter 1 this anticipation running even throughout the Apostle Nathaniel's calling to be an apostle. If you remember back in the end of John chapter, 40, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 49, right before our text for today, Jesus tells Nathaniel that he saw him uh, under the fig tree before coming to him. And Nathaniel's response is, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. It's this anticipation around this sign that the one coming would be the Messiah. So signs and Messiah are closely linked. So that's the first purpose. The second purpose in the Gospel of John is that these signs are intended to reveal some components about the identity of Jesus, who he is, his character, his makeup, uh, his disposition towards his people. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day, they had their own preconceived notions about what the Messiah would be like. Many of them were expecting kind of this political leader to come in and overthrow Rome and set up this earthly kingdom here in Israel uh, some of them anticipated in light of the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 12 that this Messiah would come in and he'd take back all the land and divvy it up among the people, never to be taken again. Uh, there were even some expectations that the Messiah would come in and immediately uh, bring about the end of the age as the Old Testament prophets would prophesy that he comes and it's, it's over, the end. Israel wins, you know, the Messiah comes and delivers them, delivers them from all those things. So Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospel of John and he just starts to blow up these categories. Just starts to blow people's minds as to what the Messiah would actually be like. And regardless of the conclusions reached uh, from these signs, from the work of Christ, which many conclusions were reached, some right and some wrong, some that didn't go quite far enough, most everyone believed that Jesus was from God in some way. Uh, even Nicodemus, you know, the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he comes and visits Jesus at night. Nicodemus was this Pharisee, this leader of the Jewish people. And the first thing he says to Jesus, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but the first thing he says to him is, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God were with him. So there's this understanding that, yeah, this sign doer, this miracle worker is from God. We may not be, he may not be the Messiah, but he's at least come from God in some way. And so the signs, again, were to communicate something about the character of God. To quote uh, a professor of my seminary, Dr. Frank Thielman, 
He says, for John, Jesus' signs point to the reality that he is one with God. That he's not just a prophet, that he's not just a teacher, that he's not just a miracle worker. That he is one with God. That him and God, him and the Father are the same in essence and in being. And then third, third, the purpose of the signs, third purpose of the signs in the Gospel of John that ties all this together is that John uses signs to bring about faith. The purpose of the signs is belief. Belief. Uh, keep your finger in John 2 and flip over to John chapter 20. Flip over to the end of John, John chapter 20. Uh, we're going to look at verses 30 and 31. And one of the reasons I love the Gospel of John so much is that you don't have to figure out why he wrote it. It kind of tells you straight up, this is why I wrote the Gospel. And so in John 20, 30 and 31, he says this. <clears throat> now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, so these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the signs were for the purpose of belief, and where there is belief, there is life. Belief in the name of Jesus brings about life from Jesus. Now that having been said, as we're going to see throughout our study of these seven signs, um, there's actually, in reality, kind of a, a complex relationship between signs and belief in the Gospel of John. You know, you see that, you read that in verses 30 and 31, that these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, have life in his name. But throughout the Gospel of John, there's much criticism over solely sign-based belief. It's almost like uh, the, the belief is a little superficial or shallow. You know, you saw the sign, you had your bellies filled, now come eat, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and nobody wants to hang out anymore, right? It's just weird, all right? Jesus kind of rebukes them for their shallow faith, their shallow belief. But regardless of that, the purpose of John is that these, these signs are intended to communicate that Jesus is the Son of God and that we may believe that he, has, uh, that he is the Son of God and have life in his name. And so, regardless of the hard teaching we may hear, we continue to follow Christ and believe that he is the source of life. So let me combine these three reasons into one summary statement for you. This kind of kind of be a good definition of signs that we're going to unpack over the course of the next few weeks. And here it is. Signs are acts that speak to Jesus' identity as the Son of God and lead unbelievers to faith. All right? Signs are acts that speak to Jesus' identity as the Son of God and lead unbelievers to faith. So we're going to see that definition just manifest itself all throughout this study and even in our text for this morning. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, what Buster just read. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again, just to kind of enter into the text. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the third day, it's probably the third day since having this conversation with Nathaniel at the end of John chapter 1. Now John has been tracking throughout John chapter 1 verse 19 all the way into our text for today. Jesus' first week of doing ministry. So John 1, 19, day 1. John 2, 1 through 11, day 7. All right, so you're getting the first week of the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist is the first to witness uh, to make witness of Jesus in John 1:19. Now Jesus is about to witness about himself in John 2 verses 1 through 11. 
Now, the fact that Mary, Jesus' mother, she's actually never named in the Gospel of John, but we know her as Mary. The fact that she is there at this wedding in Cana and the fact that Jesus and his disciples were also invited to this wedding in Cana suggests that this wedding may have been for a family member or a close family friend that invited them to come along. And, and weddings in the first century were not just one night, one night affairs, right, like we'd have in the West. They were weeks long. Uh, weddings. I mean, this, these could get super expensive, these celebrations. And the, the bridegroom, a um, little shift in our culture, the bridegroom is actually, and his family are the ones to provide all the refreshment, all the wine, and all the food for all the guests that may come through that celebration. And Jesus heads up with his disciples. And at this point in the narrative of John, there's five of them. All right, there's five. You have Peter, Andrew, Nathaniel, Philip, and the unnamed disciple, which we can assume is John, John himself. And at some point during this wedding feast, they run out of wine, all right, which would have been a huge deal. Uh, it had the potential in this culture, this shame culture, to bring about great reproach on the family if refreshments ran out. And not only that, there are also a few records of this time period from the family of the bride suing the family of the groom because they ran out of wine, all right? It's not a good way to start a marriage, uh, I promise. But let's read verses 3 through 5 again um, as we make our way down. Verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So the wine is empty, it's gone, there's no more left. Mary, Jesus' mother, approaches them, lets Jesus know they ran out of wine. And it's interesting at this point in the narrative because she doesn't make a direct request of Jesus. She doesn't ask him to make more wine, right? She just tells him, hey, the wine's gone. But inferred in the next few verses, uh, given the context, we can infer that the request is implied. Hey, and they can do something about this, so they don't have any wine left. Which is also interesting on another level, because up to this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus, or at this point in the life of Jesus, he has not performed one miracle, ever. I mean, we have some accounts in the other Gospels of Jesus as a boy, but of no miracles of Jesus before his pre, uh, pre-baptism or pre-ministry. But we know that Mary had, at this point, witnessed many miraculous things around Jesus, right? Even if he hadn't performed a miracle himself, I mean, an angel showed up and told her Jesus was about to be born, right? She was a virgin when she uh, gave birth to Jesus, which is a miracle, right? So she had witnessed enough around Jesus to know that he was unique, that he was special, even if he had not performed a miracle to this point in his life. And at the same time, we can also make an inference that sometime during the life of Jesus, his adolescence maybe, his father died, that Joseph died. Joseph's not mentioned in any of the Gospels past the birth and boy narratives of Jesus. So many people believe that at some point during Jesus growing up, his father had passed away. So Mary may have come simply just to rely on Jesus' resourcefulness, as he had been the one that had provided for their family growing up in the realm of carpentry. We don't know why she approached Jesus with this problem, but we do know there's a level, as we talked about before, a level of expectation that he's going to figure something out. 
And then his response to her in verse 4 is just weird, all right? It's just weird. Not normally, he say, first off, he starts it with woman, which is um, not normally an endearing term, right? Um, but one that doesn't uh, have any kind of disrespect in it because he addresses Mary the same way in John 19 when he tells John to take care of her when he's on the cross. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. But he basically responds with, okay, what does this have to do with us? Why are you bringing this, this to me? What does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. This hour that Jesus is talking about, that he talks about throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John, is, it refers to his death on the cross and his resurrection, uh, when his glory will be revealed to the world. So this response to Mary is honestly, it's a slight rebuke. It could almost be interpreted as Jesus declaring that the mission he's about, the mission to do the Father's will and be glorified in his death and resurrection, this mission, his hour, will not be subverted at all, even by the request of his mother. When it's time for him to reveal his glory, he will reveal his glory. But as we'll see throughout the Gospel of John, even though the cross and the resurrection fully display the glory of Christ, there are these moments where he begins to show a handful of people his glory over time. And this is one of those moments. So as the text continues on in verses 6 through 8, the servants literally do everything Jesus asks them, as, as strange as these requests are. You know, present with Jesus are these six stone jars of purification, these jars that were going to be filled with water for ritual washings of the Jews. You know, they had a lot of rituals to clean up themselves before coming to eat or fill in the blank. And each of these stone jars held about 20 to 30 gallons each. So these are large stone jars. So he tells these servants to fill each of these stone jars with water all the way to the top, which would have been a ton of work. All right, there's no running water, there's no faucet, there's no uh, water hose, there's no nothing. It's literally scooping water out of a source and dumping it into these jars. But they do it. And they don't even ask any questions, they just do it. They just obey him. Now the thoughts running through my head, if Jesus gives this request, is, uh, hey man, I'm not sure you heard your mom, they don't need water, <laughs> they, need, they need wine, they're not that drunk yet. They're going to know this is not wine, that it's water. Um, but they do it. You know, and the text says they actually fill the jars up to the brim. So they do it all the way. They don't stop short. They just obey the word of Christ. So Jesus tells them to scoop some out and to take it to the master of the feast. This master of the feast is probably the chief steward or chief waiter in charge of, of carrying out this ceremony. He's a big deal. He's a big deal at weddings. And so he takes this water, now turned wine, and he sips it, and he makes the declaration to the bridegroom, who probably moments before is anticipating much shame, right? They have no more wine. And his shame is now turned to confusion and probably a lot of relief, as the chief steward says in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Clearly, Jesus has performed a mighty act of God on behalf of this groom and his family. It's an amazing feat. It's an amazing miracle. It's a sign that John is giving to us to communicate something greater than the sign, right? So what is 
John communicating to us about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus through this sign? What are the implications of Christ's character towards us as his people by nature of this sign? Well, let's spend the next few minutes, the next few minutes just talking about that. And I want to start in in kind of an odd place, but I want to start talking about prayer. The nature of prayer. Now, this text is not... Uh, this text is not directly about prayer. There's no direct ask of Jesus, as we talked about before, from this text. There's no teaching about prayer in this passage. But in Mary's indirect request by making a statement, she is bringing before Jesus a desperate need. And Mary brought this need to the only one present who could do anything about it, which is Jesus. Which is what prayer is. Prayer is a petitioning of God to act. Prayer is acknowledging that you cannot do that which you ask. And you're coming to the one who's able to accomplish what you seek. It's an act of dependence. It's an act of desperation. When we choose not to pray, if we choose not to pray, we are in essence saying that we ourselves can handle the situation before us. One of our core convictions here at Emmanuel revolves around prayer, kingdom advancing prayer, bringing to God the needs of this city to advance the kingdom in this city in Birmingham and beyond for his glory. But our prayers are only as good as the one we pray to. You don't have to be a Christian to pray. I mean, prayer is a part of many faiths in our world today. Prayer is not unique to Christianity So the one we are petitioning is actually way more important than the prayers offered. And there are three qualities. If you're looking at somebody you're praying to, a deity you're praying to, there's three qualities that deity needs to be able to answer your prayer. One is power. One is disposition. They need to want to do it. And the third is wisdom. When to do it and when not to do it. Right? Mary brings this petition to Jesus, the one who, whether she knew it or not, possessed all three of these characteristics and who could grant her request. So let's break that down just a little bit. So let's think about power. Let's think about the authority of Christ. Well, the first thing we learn from this parable is that Jesus is sovereign over all creation. That he's sovereign over all creation. He possesses the power because he is the one who spoke it into existence. John's already established this in chapter 1 when he says that it's through Jesus that all things were made. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus sustains the universe by the word of his power. The reason you're not a puddle right now is because Christ is actively speaking your existence into existence. But think about this power to another degree just for a second from our text this morning. Jesus doesn't even have to touch anything or say a word for creation to obey. He literally touches nothing. He doesn't touch the jar. He doesn't touch the water. He doesn't touch the ladle. There's no sleight of hand. Not even mentioning that a sleight of hand for 180 gallons of water is a big deal. I don't know how you would do that. He also doesn't say anything to the water. There's no incantation. There's no let there be wine. There's none of that. What Jesus has done in his sovereign, mighty mind is he has created water, commanded water to become wine. 
And just to give you an idea of the magnitude of this miracle, I did some math, which is uh, slightly dangerous because I, there's a reason I'm in ministry. I'm not a math guy. Um, but I did some math, and if we took a middle-of-the-road approach here, if we assumed that these six jars were you know, 20 to 30 gallons each, what the text says, let's say they're 25 gallons each, all right? Six jars, 25 gallons each. Multiply six by 25, you get 150 gallons, all right? Now, there are 128 ounces in one gallon, all right? 128 fluid ounces in one gallon. So multiply that by six gallons, by you know, 150 gallons, it comes up to 19,200 ounces of water. Your average bottle of wine is about 25 ounces. So you take 25 ounces and divide it into 19,200 ounces of wine. You get 768 bottles of wine. Jesus just made with his thoughts 768 bottles of wine. Good wine. There's absolutely no way this wedding party is going to drink 768 bottles of wine in less than a week. The one we pray to, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has the authority and the power needed to address the need in John 2. And he possesses the authority and the power to address your needs as well. But do you really believe that? Do I really believe that? I mean, honestly, if you look at your own tendency to pray or to not to pray... When we're faced with a dire situation, a situation that is truly desperate, which everybody in this room has faced at some point, if you haven't, you will. When these situations require nothing short of a miracle from a mighty God, do we believe that he can do it? If I'm being honest with you, I wish I hope to be honest with you a lot, uh, many times, practically speaking, in my heart of hearts, I don't believe that when I pray. I don't believe that Jesus can do the impossible in the situation I find myself in. I've sat with many men and women in hospital rooms looking at a diagnosis that will take nothing short of an act of God to save them. And even as I pray for them, in my heart, I'm doubting God's going to do anything. I lack faith. And because I lack faith, I empathize with the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe that's you too. Do we truly believe that God has the power to do the impossible? So when we pray, may we continue to pray big things, knowing that the one we pray to is strong enough to grant us our request and authoritative enough to literally change water into wine, something that was not into something that is. So the one we petition needs the power to grant us what we ask, which we have established Jesus has that. But Jesus also needs the disposition to act as well. He needs to want to do it. So the second thing we learned from this miracle is that Jesus has the heart to act. He has the heart to act. It's one thing to be powerful. It's quite another thing to be willing. If the Lord possesses the power with no desire to do anything, then our prayers just turn into coercion. 
If I just convince him to do what I ask him to do by offering the right prayers or saying the right words or giving enough money or living a better life or doing enough penance, doing enough good deeds, then he will be pleased with me and give me what I ask. It's not prayer. That's coercion. Try to convince the one that can grant your request to actually do something he may not want to do. The relationship of Mary and Jesus... Mary, the mother of Jesus, the relationship of mother and son is probably the most intimate of Jesus' relationships with women in his life. I mean, for all of us men in this room that have a good relationship with our mom, uh, I mean, we, have, we know how, lo- how deep that love runs. There's nothing we wouldn't do for our mothers, right? And I would imagine it's the same with you women and your fathers. You have a good relationship with your dad. Regardless of what Mary knew regarding the power of Jesus to work miracles, We can know for certain she knew how much her son loved her. How much he desired to provide for her in her widowhood if Joseph had actually died. And the foundation of this relationship is undergirded. It undergirded the request because Mary knew that her son, if he was able, would do the best he could do simply because he loved her. How many of us in this room, when we seek to pray before our almighty Sovereign God, we don't doubt his ability to grant us what we ask. But how many of us doubt his desire to grant us what we ask? Maybe you see too many flaws in yourself. Too messed up. This request is too small. I've prayed this for years. I don't want to keep bothering God with it. He's got other things to attend to. God's upset with me. He's angry with me. He's disappointed in me. I've disappointed him too much for my prayers to even matter. Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. I recommend it to anybody. He said this. He said, We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Is that you? Do you feel like You have disqualified yourself to approach Christ because of your sins and your weaknesses. Those are actually what qualify you to approach Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus from Luke 12, 32. He says, Take heart, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your Father's good pleasure brother or sister, child of God. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. No arm twisting needed. No coercion, no amount of works to be performed. Our God is not stingy, holding what we need back until we ask pretty please with a cherry on top. He takes delight, takes delight to give you the kingdom. Jesus produced 768 bottles of wine. 768 bottles. Indescribably more than this wedding party would need. The Father takes delight in giving us the kingdom indescribably more than we would ever need. We serve a God who takes pleasure in being generous. So God, through Jesus, he has the power. He is authoritative over all creation. He has the desire He is for us, for the good of his children. And then third, and this is super important, 
He has the wisdom to know what's best. He has the wisdom to know what's best. He's all wise. He he knows when to give and he knows when to withhold. As a parent, I have the power to give my kids candy all day. Just go to the store, buy a big bag of candy and give it to them all day. I have the power to do that. I have the desire to make my kids happy all day, right? Candy will make them happy, no doubt. But if I don't have the wisdom to know that candy all day is not good for their health, then I'm a bad parent. They need less pleasurable vegetables and less desirable fruit to grow and flourish and be physically healthy in this life. You know, the amazing thing about God is when the less pleasurable things come our way, when the less desired things come our way, he tends to take our desires and make us want those things. We think, about, we think that we know what will make us happy. We offer prayers by a belief that we are asking for the right things. We, as far as we know, we are asking for the right things. But we need the wisdom of our authoritative, good, kind Father to know when we need pleasure and to know when we need pain. To know when we need his blessing and to know when we need his discipline. This is a characteristic of our, God, of our God that we must attach our hope to when we are faced with situations that we do not understand. God knows what is best for us, and we must cling to the reasons, his reasons, above our own. Jesus in John 2 could have decided not to turn water into wine. He's God. He can choose to do whatever he wants. And it wouldn't have been because he didn't have the ability or the disposition, but it would have been because he possessed the wisdom to accomplish the greatest ends. And what are the greatest ends? Well, that's where we find verse 11. Let's read verse 11. This, the first of the signs he did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. God's glory and our belief. The focus of this text is on the glory of Christ. Over and above any faith of anyone, Mary, the disciples, the servants, if withholding wine would have glorified God and produced belief, Jesus would have done it. Because you see, there's even greater truth happening in our text right now that we haven't even talked about yet. Not only do we learn from this text about the nature of prayer and the heart of the one we pray to, But we also see the reality of transformation. Jesus is transforming water into wine. Jesus is making all old things new. He is taking that which represents the old order and inaugurating a new age. An age not simply different from the one before, but qualitatively superior to anything that has preceded it. The kingdom of God had arrived... In Christ. The jars used in this miracle held the water of the old way, the water for the ritual washing, of purification, of cleaning yourself up before you come to God. The prophets spoke of a day when the Messiah would come and inaugurate this new kingdom. Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Amos says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from it. 
I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, when they shall make, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Jesus Christ has come to take the old and replace it with the new. To take our lives, our old wineskins, and to create new wineskins that can hold new wine. In Christ, we find transformation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. As God's people, he has transformed us by the Spirit. And by his Spirit, he continues to transform us. I love how the Apostle Paul says it. How does he transform us? Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We behold Christ, and he has the power, the desire, and the wisdom to transform us by his Spirit. We've been transformed, and we are being transformed. It's this another incident of this already not yet reality we find ourselves in. And we, church, we await the day when we behold, we will behold Christ in his full glory when he comes, and we will be fully transformed by that glory. But until then, until then, may the Lord increase our faith to pray big things, to trust our God's heart, and may he produce in us a desire to see his glory. So let me pray for us. Father, you are great and mighty and majestic in your splendor. You are so far above us, so transcendent to us. And yet in Christ, you draw near to us. You transform us by your grace and your power to not be the same people we were before. And you are continually transforming us to be more shaped and made into the image of Jesus. I thank you for this miracle, something as small as Jesus turning water into wine. I thank you for this miracle that that reminds us that you are in the business of changing us completely. Not leaving any part of our hearts, of our lives, unchanged by the gospel, by the Spirit but taking something that was not and making it something that is, namely children of God. I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, for loving us, for caring for us, for being wise towards us. You are all wise. You are all knowing. There's nothing that you don't know or don't see. You know what's best for us. May we trust your heart. May we trust your heart that you love us, that you care for us even now, even now. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.